All right, so with that, um, I want to thank each of our speakers for coming today. Um, and uh, let me give you uh, an introduction to them if you don't know them already. Uh, first, we have Dr. Hardy. He is the Assistant Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages here. Um, he got his PhD and MA at the University of Chicago in Northwest Semitic uh, Philology. Um, he got his MDiv at Southern, and he did a BA at the University of Oklahoma in Mathematics. So. Um, that kind of shows you you don't have to continue in the same track uh, that you end up in. So I still know where I'm going there. Too, also. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Professor Strickland, um, he's a special advisor to the president for diversity and an instructor of theology. Uh, he's in the progress of getting a PhD at the University of Aberdeen uh, in theology. Um, he got his THM and MDiv here uh, in theology and hermeneutics and Christian ministry. And he got his BA at Cedarville University in Biblical and Theological Studies. Uh, finally, Dr. Heath Thomas, he is the Director of PhD Studies here. Um, he's Associate Professor of Old Testament Hebrew as well. And he got his PhD at the University of Gloucester, um, uh, MA at Southwestern in Theology, and a BA at Oklahoma Baptist in English Literature. So. Thank you, gentlemen, for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. So uh, we've got some questions that we've prepared uh, already in advance for, for our uh, panelists to answer. Uh, but if you have any questions uh, during the presentation, uh, we've given you these little uh, flyers. And at the very bottom, we have a number that you can text any of your questions to. Um, uh, and at the end of, the, of our time, if we have time, uh, Nate will bring those up to me and we'll, um, we'll run through uh, some of those questions whatever, whatever time we have left. So, all right. All right, so the first question that we have for you guys is why should someone consider pursuing a PhD program? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, thanks for all of you being here. It's great to see the interest in uh, postgraduate work. Uh, so it's great to see you here. And thanks to the library for holding these talks. I think it's a fantastic thing. And I wish I would have had this prior to looking at PhD programs because I would have loved to have sat down with some folks who, who were like-minded and said, oh, what questions do you have? Well, what questions do I have? So this is a great thing. Uh, thank you so much for, for hosting us. Um, the question was? Uh, why should someone consider pursuing a PhD? <laughs> why should someone consider doing a PhD? It's a great question, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a very important question. Uh, you know, it's easy to talk about why you should do a PhD. Uh, here are some ways not to answer that question, okay? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a, a good way to start. Why shouldn't you do a PhD? You shouldn't do a PhD to get three letters behind your name. That's not a good reason to do a PhD. You shouldn't do a PhD to please someone else. That's not a good reason to do a PhD, okay? You shouldn't do a PhD because after it, you'll earn lots of money because God knows that's just not gonna happen, okay? So those are some common reasons why people might pursue a PhD, but those are not really good reasons to do a PhD, okay? Um, in our PhD program at Southeastern, one of the things that I encourage students that I talk with on a day-to-day -day basis is, my first question is, is why do you want to do a PhD? Has God called you to do this? In other words, has God gifted you to do academic work? 
uh, is he set you on a trajectory to do academic work? And do people around you confirm that in you? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things for me uh, was I was very unsure. I don't know about you guys, but I feel very unsure, and, and I did feel very unsure about even my ability to do it. I still feel that way. Oh, can I really do this? But that's where the church comes around an individual and confirms the things that God is doing in their hearts and in their lives. And so the people I, I knew and I loved and I trusted the most in my church and then mentors that I've had for years, they said, you know, Heath, this is something that you need to pursue. God has gifted you in this area. And most importantly, we feel like for the kingdom of God, this is something that you need to play your part. Mm-hmm. So do your Ph.D., now, why, why did I do that? Well, I feel like God has called me to teach, and a Ph.D. is a, a way to move in that direction, okay? So if you feel called, if God's gifted you in teaching, and you absolutely love the academic life, the intellectual life, then a Ph.D. is probably a good thing to do because what it will do is it will, it will give you the space and the avenues for God to do his sanctifying work in you towards the academic end okay and you know it's easy for us to say oh well academics is you know secular or that's really not church work and i would just really press against that that's not true i am a human being called of god to serve god in whatever capacity he's called me to that means that church work is holy but so's academic work do you know why it's under the authority of god too so my call to do academic life or academic work is part of my larger obedience to Christ. So if God has called you to this, then pursue it with all the energy and all the rigor that you can muster. That's a good reason to do it, okay? If, if it can uh, be a, a tool that God can sharpen you with and, and use you towards uh, teaching, towards writing— or towards being a more thoughtful minister in the world. So here's, here's the thing that I would say. Don't just think about Ph.D. work in terms of, of teaching. Maybe God's called you to this, and you don't know why. I mean, I get this in our, in our Ph.D. kind of groups uh, that come in yearly. They, they say, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know if I'm going to be a teacher, if I'm going to be a pastor or a missionary. We have all three in our program. Or if I'm just going to be a, a richer, wiser more uh, robust follower of Jesus after the, I, I, I come through the program. I don't know, but I feel like God's called me this, so I'm going to do it. That's a good reason to do the Ph.D. So just to kind of add on to that, Dr. Thomas, um, affirming all you said, I, I think people enter Ph.D. programs as an on-ramp to something, thinking it's automatic, like an on-ramp to becoming a faculty member, as an on-ramp to becoming a writer or a published author or something like that, which it might end up being that. But I think the reason to do a PhD is to really um, actualize the potential that God has already placed in you, to kind of cultivate uh, the abilities that God has given you and to be of service to the church. And so um, because the fact of the matter is you might think, okay, in the future, God might call me to teach at a college or seminary or Bible college level, which that, that very well might be the case, but that's not automatically the case when you finish a PhD program. So if you can say, you know what, my church has affirmed these gifts in me, and they're saying I need to sit and just 
kind of mature a little bit more to really actualize all that God has already instilled in me, then a PhD is a great avenue to do that. So I guess I guess is what I'm saying. Don't look at the results of what a PhD can give you as far as vocational sort of pursuits and writing experiences and opportunities, although that's likely there. But see it as more of a, a, a transformative experience that will make you into a follower of Christ that will be able to contribute to the body in a way that's very unique to someone who's taken the time to do that study. Yeah, I agree completely with what Heath and Walter are saying here. I think that um, all these points are, are well taken. I think there's lots of reasons not to do a Ph.D. Uh, one reason to do a Ph.D. that hasn't been mentioned, but one which I know these guys would agree with, is uh, what Mark Knoll talks about in his uh, 30-year-old book now, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Mm-hmm. And he says, what is the scandal of the evangelical mind? Is that there isn't an evangelical mind. <laughs> and so, um, not to give away the book there, that's in the first line, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, that's something that we need to think about as evangelicals, as believers, is how do we contribute to the mind, the life of the mind in the church? And are we doing it and are we doing it well? So I hope that those of you who are interested in this are interested in sort of asking the question personally, am I here to do this? And then also asking as a community, what am I here to do and contribute to the broader community of the evangelical Christian world? And I think that it kind of ties into what he's saying about calling as well from the church mm-hmm. and a calling from the church to go back to the church and do uh, something which needs to be done. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, I want to give a follow-up question to uh, Dr. Thomas and Professor Strickland because both of you mentioned uh, you use the word sanctification in the process and you use transformation uh, or transformative. Uh, what do you mean by that? What is, uh, how has that process played out in the Ph.D. or academic life? Well, I mean, the reason I use the word sanctifying is because anything that we put our hand to in obedience to Christ, what's going to happen is God can use that to shape us and make us more like Christ, right, if we let him, mm-hmm. right? Uh, getting to uh, what Chip is saying here about the life of the mind, gosh, you know, it's not just our piety that needs sanctification so that we don't sin anymore. We need to be sanctified and, and made holy in the life of the mind. And actually, we need space and time to do that. That doesn't happen automatically. Um, it's a very difficult, hard-won process. And the Ph.D. process, not the degree, but the actual process of doing a Ph.D. is that space and the time to think reflectively on why I do and think the way that I do and think. And what happens is God sh- challenges us. He shapes us. He knocks down. I love uh the image of a philosopher called Paul Ricoeur, he says, and he's talking about interpretation, he talks about how our idols need to be smashed. And uh, I think that needs to happen in the way that we think as well. What we think we know sometimes needs to be smashed because it's idolatrous and it's not honoring to Christ. And we have to have the space physically and the time to think reflectively. And what happens in that process as we do that, and that happens in the PhD process, the education, God makes us more like him, not in just our affections, or we have longer quiet times, right, or we preach better. But what God does is he shapes us from the inside out, from our minds to the way that we think, to, it, to, to be more pleasing to Christ. This is what I mean by sanctification. Um, 
he makes us holy through and through, including our habits and including our thought processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just thinking about the word transform- transformation and also sanctification in light of academia, I think there's a wonderfully Christian sort of worldview and theological framework under this, and it's basically alluding to the fact that we shouldn't view our lives in different petri dishes. This is my church petri dish. This is my piety petri dish. This is my uh, academic or intellectual petri dish and my familial or family petri dish. Each and every one of those, because we are human, this is our theological anthropology here, since we're, we are human, these things necessarily inform each other. And so as we are trying to live a life under Christ's lordship, we put our mind under Christ's lordship, we put our families under Christ's lordship, we put every part of our being um, under Christ's lordship, therefore, it's all a part of God making us more like his son, Christ. And so um, to use transformative and sanctification in the context of a, an academic pursuit, I think is a, a very fitting description of what's going on in the PhD process, which is the process uh, is the key. Uh, that, cro- that process of the, the journey is, is, is essential. And I, I just want to build on something that Walter's saying. It's this process, you know, that our, uh, the life of the mind and for the sake of, of Christ, the church, and the world. I mean, this is the, what I want to get at is the stakes. The stakes are huge. Okay? Um, what Chip is saying about Noel, Noel's book is so helpful is because it shook us out of our slumber to some degree. And I'm, I'm actually afraid, not fully, <laughs> right? Yeah. The slumber is, oh, everything's fine, everything. No. It's quite clear in the New Testament that we are in an age where Christ is on his throne, but Satan is warring in the last death throes mm-hmm. to take as many down as he can. And we need Christ's followers to basically be faithful to Christ. In every sphere of life, including the life of the mind, the academic world. How many of you went to institutions, and, and you know, maybe this is just a very small sample, but how many of you guys went to uh, state institutions or, or uh, uh, you know, just what we would call secular state universities or something like that? Anybody in this room? Okay, did you find it extremely helpful? Would anybody go into religion classes in those, in those schools? Okay, yeah, how was that experience for you? Um, well, I mean, the class was taught from an atheist ethnic Jew, so the Hebrew Bible is a little bit interesting. A L- little bit different, yeah, right? Very yeah, critical. Yeah, yeah, a little bit critical, Always right? Always trying to portray God as more monster. Yeah. So almost like the boogeyman. Yeah, God is the boogeyman. We're more enlightened now. We can, we can rise above this. And that's not universally true, right? You have people at seminaries saying sim- similar things. So I don't want to pick on state universities, right? The point that I'm making is, quite simply, the stakes are really high. If we don't stand in the gap, somebody will. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee that they're going to hold the standard of God's truth or they're going to be thinking creatively and productively for the honor of Christ, the advancement of the church, and the good of the world. There's no guarantee on that. You know, Christ has, has called us to, to move in that direction. And, you know, it's, it takes really hard work, years and years of preparation. It's not a microwave-quick reality. So this process of transformation mm-hmm. is... It's a great opportunity. This PhD process is a great opportunity. It's a wonderful privilege, but it's very difficult.
All right, thanks. Um, so we've got uh, several different types of students in here. Some are master's level. I know of at least one college student. What can they be doing now to prepare for the PhD uh, program if they feel like that's what God's called them to? Yeah, I think there's some key uh, key things we should be concentrating on, uh, regardless of where you're in, in uh, right now, what, what position you're in, what level you're at. One is uh, you need to be able to write. I mean, it seems almost, yeah, I mean, it almost seems uh, automatic, but you know, most high schools don't teach you how to write well, and and you need to be able to write well. No one in your PhD program is going to come to you and say, "Well, you don't have a thesis in this paper, and you need to work on this, and you're not arguing well." What they're going to say is, "Sorry, we wasted our time with you. Please leave." That's what they're going to say because you need to be able to write. All right, and 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 to on top of that, other things that I think uh, would be pretty far-reaching would be to have some type of um, experience with uh, the different research languages. So the better you can uh, you can hone your skills in French and German, and Spanish and Latin and others, then um, then the better you are uh, to be equipped to go into uh, those programs as well. Because again, that's going to be a skill that 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 those programs are going to expect you to have ahead of time. And if you wait till you get to the PhD program to do that, you're, uh, you're already going to be behind and you're going to be playing catch up the whole time. Um, the third thing I would say, uh, well, I'll leave my third thing to another point I think we're going to cover later about getting into PhD yeah. programs. But Just to contextualize the, the need to learn how to write to Southeastern, there's several ways that you can do this. We have a writing center that's wonderful. That's right. So please, please take advantage of the writing center. I can, I can read papers and know which ones I've taken advantage of the writing center. And that's why I've now required it for my students to go to the writing center. Because it's very, very helpful. Uh, also, letting your faculty know, hey, you know what, I'm, I have a goal of, of doing academic research and writing and perhaps PhD if the Lord allows. And so we can be more, uh, we're, we're, we're always careful, we're always diligent in our grading and so forth. But for the student who is, has told me this, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to ratchet it up a little bit. And, and really give them some, some comments and then even have you know some another meeting with them to sit down and discuss their writing. And so uh, take advantage of classes that do have research papers. So proactively take those classes. I know some people run from them. Take them, you know, tell your professor what your hopes and what your uh, potential aspirations are, where, where you think God is calling you. Um, go to the writing center and then uh, you know, just allow people to read your writing too. And uh, I was so scared when I was uh, trying to become a better writer that someone's actually going to critique me. <laughs> well, writers are made, not born, for the, for, for the majority of us. So I had to let people like Dr. Chip McDaniel, uh, Dr. David Hogg, who's my THM professor, and uh, Billy Goodenough, who's a, um, who's a secretary here for the faculty, who's just a phenomenal uh, sort of grammarian, if you will. <laughs> She's awesome. She really is. So shout out to Billy. Um, yeah, ba basically people have torn my stuff to pieces. Uh, and, and that's when I become a better writer because I've opened myself up to that sort of loving critique. Yeah, and I just want to say quickly, um, stop thinking about grades. Mm -hmm. This is the craziest thing. Uh, you, you think it, it's almost counterintuitive. You think, well, I've got to have you know, a 3.8 or above to get into a, 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 you know, a PhD program. Why are you saying stop thinking about grades? Because the grades become this thing that you're trying to get at and you've lost the learning. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're not here to get grades. You're here to learn. And if you learn and you focus on the learning and the acquisition of the knowledge and the development of wisdom, guess what's going to happen? The grades will follow. But if you make grades your little Buddha that you have to rub its belly, right, before you take a test and have I, have I done enough here? Have I done enough? Well, then all sorts of things can be misdirected. Like your, your, your value and your worth can be wrapped up in an A instead of uh, in Christ. Well, that's screwed up. You don't do that, right? Secondly, you, you can replace the A for the learning, and that's disaster. Because when you, let's say you get the A and you get into a PhD program, what happens when you're in there? You don't have anything in the reservoir. There's nothing. You have a grade, but it's hollow. Because the grade is supposed to be there indicative of what you've learned. So focus on the learning. Make the main thing the main thing. You've got to learn. And have that reservoir of, of and that wealth of knowledge and wisdom built up that you can draw from as you get into a PhD program. But you've got to focus on the right thing. Stop thinking about grades so much. Isn't that silly? Yeah, and on top of that, I think stop thinking about classes as grades as well, right? So you might say, hey, I'm going to take so-and-so professor or so-and-so class in my electives because I know I can get an A in that class, right? It doesn't matter as much, right? I mean, it really doesn't. Um, I mean, I'll be the first to admit I did not make straight A's in my undergraduate degree or in my seminary degree. Me neither. Is that is that like scandalous to say that, Walter? I don't know where you're at, but <laughs> no, but I didn't uh, do that. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, at least in the first one. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and, and you know, so so the so it's the learning that matters, and and so think of your courses not as those avenues to you know those stepping stones to get there, but rather the the uh, you know the doors that are going to open up to new avenues of thinking, new ways of considering things, and so that's hugely important and make it one step further think about your curriculum in the same way right don't think about your elective classes as you know i'm going to take these easier classes or this is what everyone else is doing but but rather use those classes to open up your horizons and think differently about things you know take a class outside of your area this would be a good thing for most of us you know cross interdisciplinary and uh, study is the key word these days at the university and so, you know, get outside of yourself. I think some of the most helpful classes I took at seminary were my philosophy classes. I took a lot of them. I, I didn't do anything with philosophy when I got, <laughs> got the PhD work, but, but that was helpful. It gave me a framework to think about some things that, that maybe I wouldn't have been able to think about before. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, one follow-up question, because you, uh, all of you have kind of alluded to uh, this. Um, do you have to be a genius to get a PhD? Or super no. Company <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> look, look at us. I mean, <laughs> case in point. Well, you know what? Um, th- this this is what I was told by somebody who's very very wise. They say um, people who are brilliant don't make great PhD students because yeah. they never had to work hard. But people who are who have been given some some smarts, but work hard and have the grit to make it through, write the best dissertations. And they make the best teachers, they make the best authors, they make the best pastors, they make the best believers in God's world that are change agents for Christ. And so really and truly, it's, it's more of a, it's a marathon. Can you balance life and PhD? I mean, many of you are going to be, you know, older as you get into the PhD process. Kids start coming, marriage and stuff, I mean, in, in the other order, obviously. 
uh, Lord willing. But, you know, marriage and then kids and then, you know, and then the stuff of life begins to kind of become not an obstacle, but something to interact with as you're doing your study. Um, and so if you have the, the stick-to-itiveness, as my, as my dad would say, to get through the PhD process, that's, that's just as uh, invaluable as being smart. Do you have anything to add? No. I yeah, I, I think, I think uh, it's yeah. exactly right. You don't have to be a genius, but you have to work hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's really hard. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's just really hard. So, no, you don't have to be a genius, but you've got to be able to work hard. And so you got to count the cost. Why do I want to do this? Yeah. If it's just for a degree, it's not worth it. Yeah. But if you feel like God's called you to this, everybody's confirming it, you feel like God's gifted you in this, and you can be a benefit to Christ and his church, well, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, we need men and women who are, who are ready to step up and jump in there, right? Mm-hmm. Throw your hat in the ring. Mm-hmm. But, no, I think, yeah. I, I hope that it doesn't happen that way because I keep telling my son, oh, if you want to play football or whatever, you're fast, great, but, you know, that'll only take you so far. If you don't put it to work in, people are going to pass you as you get older. Right. So, you know, you have natural giftings. That's wonderful. But I agree with Walter 100 yeah. percent. You've got to work, got to work, got to work. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about why we should do a Ph.D. program. How do we go about choosing the Ph.D. program that we want to uh, pursue? I guess it's back to me. Um, I, I, these, this is extremely discipline specific. So, but I think in general, in general, what you need to do as you're thinking through uh, where you want to go, what you want to do, what job you want to have on the other side, how are you going to serve uh, in your church or in an academic institution. So think about your goals. That's extremely important, right? So if you have a goal to work at the greatest university in America, then you probably need to go to one of the best schools in America to get there. All right. If you go down, if you get on the faculty websites of uh, you know whatever you think the best school in America is, um, then you'll see that they were trained at some of the best schools in the world. It's very. It's an exception to see otherwise. It's a very rare exception. All right. So that's that's one thing. So as you're thinking about it, you need to think about uh, tiers of schools, if you will, right? Quality of education as well as tiers of school. And secondarily, I think uh, specialties, uh, your special, what you're going to specialize in. So as you're focusing in on what you want to study, you need to ask, what places allow me to study that? And the more specialized you can understand those things in your own sort of heart, right, and in your own mind, what you want to do, then, and the more and the better you understand the schools and where the specializations are at these schools, then you can, uh, you can tailor uh, your uh, application and your study in that direction and then uh, use other things to get there. So I think that's the main two points. I'll just add two more. Um, and I just forgot what they both were. Um, <laughs> that's funny, I just went blank. Um, yeah, this is it. So when you go to an undergraduate institution or you, you're doing graduate work at the master's level, you're usually going to a school by virtue of its reputation as a whole. But when you do doctoral work, what you're doing is you're going for a supervisor. Figure out who you want to be shaping you. Um, and, and what we understand is, is this. 
shaping you as a person because this person's disposition is going to rub off on you. This person's candor is going to rub off on you. This person's um, just how they interact in the academy is going to give you clues about how to interact in the academy. Yeah, positive or negative. negative. Exactly, exactly. That's that's a great point. And so um, I say that to say this, you know, again, this is a holistic sort of endeavor. And so just know that they're going to be rubbing off on you in various ways. So find somebody that you would like to, uh, that you'd like to emulate their scholarship and also emulate their, uh, potentially even their personal lives. Um, I think that was, both of mine wrapped up in one. Well, and I also think, you know, uh, because I I did that. I I looked for a supervisor that could uh, do work. Uh, supervise my work, right? Because um, I had an area that I wanted to, to, to write on. Um, and so I looked literally the world over, and there were four people that I thought I could work with. Okay? So I contacted all four, right? And one, by virtue of the school, which was great, uh, by virtue of the school, uh, she couldn't take me on because my project... Uh, she liked the idea, but I would have had to have been in the Department of History. And that's not really, she didn't think, what my project would have lent itself to. So she said, you know, I know those other three people you're talking about. I think they'd probably be a better option for you than coming here and working with me. But thanks so much for your interest. Okay, so I was looking to work with her. The other three people I, I looked at, They were all good options, but at the end of the day, it's what Walter was saying. It was uh, who who, who was the natural fit. Now, thankfully, because of they're all in the same field and I'm in that field now, I've been able to keep up with all of them, right, which has been awesome. But how did I know who those four people were? It wasn't the school. It was what they'd written, which means you have to be a good reader. And you have to really read their stuff and really get in there and say, all right, do I like what this person is writing? Does this resonate what I'm, with what I'm interested in? And if not, then they're probably not going to be a great supervisor for your work, what you want to write on. And you might not know. You know, that's fine. You might not know what I want to write on. But are there scholars out there that really resonate that you find – uh, and, and they really resonate with what your your uh, with your interests, with what you're passionate about, with what you find yourself reading. Uh, are they on the cutting edge? Do people cite their work? And that's a big deal, right? Or does nobody know who they are? In my estimation, if you go with a world class scholar that's doing world class work, it's it will it will help shape you uh, in that same trajectory, and that's just my my estimation. Yeah. I'll just add one more thing that piggybacks on both. Um, as you're ch- trying to choose a school, just know that as you're hanging out with your faculty, as they're mentoring you, your their circle of, of friends is likely going to become your circle of friends. And so, if you're looking for a job in a particular uh, venue, you know maybe a divinity school like Princeton or Duke or Yale, then it's probably good to go to those schools and hang around with your mentor who's going to be taking you to conferences and places where, where they're delivering papers, where those people are, where, and, that, and that'll be sort of a place where you can rub shoulders with deans and so forth and the potential of hiring goes up in that venue. Uh, the same is true with like a Southeastern or a, a Fuller or a Southern or, 
you know, n name your school where they have a PhD program. I mean, if you if you want to serve and teach in one of those venues, um, you can go to the Duke or the Yale or Harvard. But I found it. This is very anecdotal, but if you're in one of these schools, rubbing shoulders with those who are in those circles, you have a almost a better chance of getting a job. It, it seems to me, uh, and that's again anecdotal, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, and I think one thing that you hear from both Walter and Heath is that personal relationships play a role in this, right? Yeah. And I think the myth is is that you know that somehow applications are double blind and no one knows who you are, you know, and <laughs> and, and that's a myth. Okay, so so getting to know people in the field, getting to know potential supervisors either through email or going to conferences is a terribly important thing. And and if you say, how do I overcome maybe not having those high grades or maybe not ha you know maybe coming from a small place or whatever you think you have to overcome we all have to overcome something right that's one way to overcome it is through personal relationships so it, it won't it won't answer all the problems you know if you still get a zero on the GRE you're not getting in you know but <laughs> but nonetheless it can it can open doors to you that may not have been open otherwise so would all of you say the most important aspect of choosing a PhD program is the advisor or mentor that you would choose or would you consider uh, other options as well. I think it's a combination of, of advisor and school. So I think different schools do different ways. I mean, you, uh, if you're in the states, you know, sometimes it's, you've got a bigger program to deal with and to interact with, and so it's not so much of a single individual, maybe a couple different individuals. If you're going overseas, it's, there's a closer relationship you have with with an advisor, and I think that's what maybe what you hear about the difference here between our experiences. Yeah, and I, I just want to build off. The, I agree. I think it's a combination of both. But for me, in my experience. It was the advisor that trumped the school. Yeah. In fact, uh, the guy I worked with, I worked with two supervisors, but the, my first supervisor was a guy named Gordon McConville. And Gordon, I thought, was still at Oxford because that's where he was. And that's where, when I had read all of his stuff, it was Oxford, you know, was where he was publishing his stuff. So I thought, oh, he's still there. But no, lo and behold, when I started reaching out to contact him, guess what? He, he had made a move. He was at this unknown school called the University of Gloucestershire. Sounds like University of Worcestershire sauce, right? <laughs> Is I mean, that an online university? Yeah, it's, it sounds like an online university, right? It doesn't even sound real. Uh, but it, actually, it's been an institution since about 1840-something, right? Um, so I thought, oh, goodness, you know, you know, should I go to Worcestershire sauce? I mean... <laughs> But at the end of the day, for me, it was a, uh, a, a you know a, a very good uh, option for me, and I felt like Gordon could supervise yeah. me, and that that was the nature of the school as well. I mean, uh, there's a difference between European and and American uh, style PhDs. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was doubly important to choose a supervisor that could walk me through the process, who was very seasoned who uh, had done a lot of work, et cetera. So that's why I went. But I think I agree with Chip 100%. It's, it's a combination of both. Okay, so you mentioned the difference between an American and a European-style PhD. Uh, maybe everyone here doesn't know about those differences, so maybe we can explain a little bit of your experience, and maybe Dr. Hardy can talk about his experience and uh, Dr. Professor Strickland as well. Okay, I guess I'll start. Well. Um, I'm currently in a British model, 
uh, PhD program. And so by virtue of having a THM heading into it, um, I was able to go right into a PhD. If I had an MDiv, I would have to do an MPhil first and then upgrade into a PhD. But essentially, the nature of the uh, British PhD model is that you are paired with a professor or a set of mentors that's going to guide you through the process of becoming an expert in what you want to become an expert in and writing a dissertation. And so um, and that process, that journey looks different for every student because they have different strengths, different weaknesses, different projects that they're trying to, to, to write. And so it's almost like a uh, an educational experience that's kind of tailored to your own hopes and dreams. <laughs> and so in, in, in a lot, and basically it's, it's three years full-time, five to six years part-time, and they're just walking you through uh, a, a process of maturation. Yeah, I would say, I, I don't know if I can generalize all American PhD programs, but I, I think most would have a component of coursework, uh, a set of comprehensive exams, and then a stage of writing a dissertation. And I think the coursework section and maybe the exam section might be the thing that's, that's added on to an American PhD. So whereas the, the writing of the dissertation or the thesis at the end is probably looks very similar, um, on the two programs, the difference would be the amount of courses that you have to, that you're required to take, and uh, and then your comprehensive exams. So, um, so if you feel like leaving seminary, leaving college here, you need to, um, you know, explore some a wider range of topics, or you feel like you need to take some more classes to sort of be closer to where you can. You know, maybe you don't know exactly what your topic is going to be. Maybe an American a PhD is for you, uh, in that it'll give you one to two more years. In my case, four more years of <laughs> courses to take uh, to help you uh, hone in on that skill set that you need to write well. Um, and then at that point, exams, and then moving on to dissertation phase actually looks, I think, probably pretty similar. So. And I think you know, uh, as a PhD director at Southeastern, I mean, one of the I'm acutely uh, sensitive to the differences between these programs because I have students coming in. Uh, maybe some of you guys have come in and asked, hey, what's the difference between these programs? Well, uh, in my experience, it's very similar to what, what Chip is saying um, and, and what Walter has mentioned as well. Bottom line, the American-style PhD has a set of seminars, okay, a seminar component, usually two to three years of seminars, comprehensive exams that uh, assesses you on your your breadth of knowledge and depth of knowledge in each of those seminars, right? And these comprehensive exams, as someone who administers them to our students on a regular basis, are very difficult, right? But what happens is you get a breadth of knowledge and a depth of knowledge in your field that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise had. So it's a very, very good thing, okay? And then you have the PhD, all right, uh, dissertation. Now, uh, that, that there are some real benefits to that. One of the things that I would say about the PhD or the DPhil uh, process in the UK is that uh, they major on uh, having a student who's already well along in the journey. Okay, that's what you want. They want to see someone who usually has all the requisite stuff in place, all the languages, all the uh, modern languages. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't have to do a, um, an, you know, an MPhil, because I would have, uh, was because I had an MA in theology. And in that MA in theology, because I was doing Old Testament, I'd already had ancient languages. I'd already had three modern languages, okay, in addition to Greek and Hebrew. All right, so 
when they looked at my my uh, not resume, what do you call transcript? They said, oh, he doesn't need an MPhil. Let's just put him directly in the PhD. That was just true for me, right? Um, so I was ready to go, right? If if that's where you are, then an, a, a UK PhD might be, uh, you know, a good style for you. Here's the thing, though. UK PhD people, they uh, the supervisors expect them to be very, very strong in terms of self-starters, self-motivated. They're not going to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing. Uh, in, in Europe in general, but certainly in the UK, the emphasis lies upon argumentation. Can you make a strong and unique argument? And so, you know, just to be very frank, this is one of the, at least in my experience here at Southeastern, uh, and, and some of the dissertations that I've read from other institutions in, in America, uh, this can be uh, an area that, that needs further work, okay? The strength of argument. Um, the UK PhD will advance an argument, and your supervisors will push you to that, because they already have all you already have all the requisite stuff they'll push you to to write i mean something solid as opposed to a compare and contrast dissertation compare this person and contrast them against this person that's not really advancing scholarship in any robust kind of way and just to be very frank that wouldn't pass muster at least for my supervisors they don't want to compare and contrast they want an argument so if you're ready to do that then maybe a, a PhD from uh, a, a UK might be more up your alley. Or you could do a Southeastern PhD, which blends the best of both worlds, right? <laughs> so I have to throw this shameless plug for our PhD program, right? Uh, in the Southeastern PhD, one of the things that we do is we blend the American style and, and the, uh, the UK style, uh, I think, in, in a very productive way. We have the, the requisite seminar structure, we have the requisite comprehensive exam, prospectus, and then dissertation, but along with that, we make the students who are applying to our program meet with potential professors. They have a formal interview uh, with their professor. The professor inter interviews the potential student. They talk about potential area of study that you wanna work in, possible dissertation topic, and then the supervisor makes a recommendation whether I want to accept this student or not. Mm -hmm. And then from your first seminar all the way through year four, okay, you're working with that supervisor, that major professor, all the way through. And so there's a strong mentorship component like you would have overseas. So if that sounds appealing to you, I would encourage you to look at the Southeastern's PhD. <laughs> All right, thank you. That was actually my next question. So, um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, we're going to skip a few questions that I prepared you guys for for the sake of time. But, um, what can these guys do if they get into a PhD program? What can they do to get the most out of their PhD experience? I don't. No, no. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll I'll speak on a personal side of things, which I think is <laughs> terribly important. So. Um, I would say that one way you can get the most out of your PhD is to, when you move and go into a PhD, assuming you're moving, that you find a good local church and get plugged in immediately. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, it's terribly important. Uh, it's too many stories of people who go out and they have good intentions, 
they they want to serve the church. They that's what they feel their calling is, but they get about halfway through, and the whole their whole world collapses around them. And more often than not, I think that the reason why is because there hasn't been a direct accountability to a local church in their area they went to. And so um, I know uh, from my own personal experience and from the experiences of my friends and colleagues at other schools that that's hugely important. So so you don't want to lose your faith in the process. It's not worth it. You better, you know, you need to count the cost, and that's not worth the cost, no matter what kind of standing or goal you have. So how are you going to protect yourself, your own heart, um, in, in that process? And that, that is the way, is to have a local church, a local group of believers who you are accountable to and that you, uh, that you meet with regularly. Yeah, just to underscore that, because the pressure is immense from your professors and then from other areas of life. So you have to have that support structure of the local church. Um, and family, and family support structure yeah. too, that's important that's, as that's well. That's true, that's yeah. very true, that's very true. Um, I, I was just gonna add, um, w- when you're in the program, don't see it as, okay, I need to check these boxes, take, you know, check these um, seminars off, you know, do my comprehensive exams, write my dissertation and go. Um, there's a lot of wonderful people around you. There's a lot of people who are doing similar work, who are doing work in different uh, disciplines that can strengthen what you're doing and you can strengthen what they're doing. So don't miss, don't miss out on uh, the collegiality of being in a PhD program because that, that, that truly is a blessing. Yeah, and I think all of those things are, are excellent. I, I fundamentally agree with Chip uh, about getting stuck in at a local church. And that was our lifeline in the UK. And uh, it, without it, we would be in deep, deep, deep trouble on so many levels. Our marriage would have been in trouble. My personal relationship with Christ would have suffered. Um, if I could be very practical, we wouldn't have had the friendship group that we have still today. We just Skype with some of our closest friends uh, in life from the UK. I haven't talked to them in eight months. And it was like we picked up, it was like yesterday. They were in our small group Bible study together. They were in our church, and uh, they've moved to a different part of the UK. We've moved here, but it doesn't matter, right? So it's so vitally important uh, to get stuck in at the local church. The other thing I would say is, and the, you know, uh, if we can talk about practicalities a little bit, let me just say very practically, you have to build margin in your life. Because of the difficulty and the pressures that Walter's talking about, you have got to build margin in your life. You cannot do it all. You are not Superman or Superwoman. You cannot do it all. It's not going to happen. You've got to build space into your schedule to thrive in a Ph.D. program. And that means, ideally, if I were saying the ideal, I would ensure that you have the requisite money to cover the Ph.D. prior to going into the Ph.D. Because what can happen, now remember, I'm saying ideal, but what can happen is you can be doing the PhD and then all the pressures of work and finance and everything else in life happens. And what's going to give? Well, the PhD is going to give, right? And it becomes a hassle rather than that sanctifying tool that God can use to shape you, all right? So I'm speaking in ideal terms. I know that's not reality. In fact, it wasn't reality for me. I served two churches. I was a curriculum writer uh, while I was doing my, my Ph.D., and I taught. So 
And I thought I was really busy until I got my teaching position here. <laughs> then I found out what busy really was. Okay. So ideally, you want to build however you can margin into your life where you can really devote the time and energy to do the Ph.D. work. It's not an add-on. It's not something that you can just add on to your already full life. It won't work, and you'll, you'll crash and burn. Okay? Make it an integral part of your life. Integral, right? Not additional. All right, one last question for you guys. Um, now that you've been through the program, the PhD program, or you're still going through it, if you could uh, stop yourself in the first year, if you could go back and uh, visit that person, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give yourself uh, in starting the program? Is run an option? Is <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think you us. I, I think uh, the biggest piece of advice that I would give is what I tried to do. Um, give yourself totally to the process. I, I don't know how I, I would just say, and I wish that I would have even more. You have all these res a wealth of resources around you. You have journals and books and libraries at your fingertips. You have world-class people all around you right there. You have people that you're going to be rubbing shoulders with for the rest of your life. Don't take that for granted. Get stuck in and take advantage of it. Dive in. Yeah. Yeah. Dive in. I wish I'd have told myself that. I mean, <laughs> I had, you know, I had I'm trying to remember how many universes. Everything's so so much smaller in the in the UK in general, but I had all these places all around lectures going on all the time all the time every week it seems like um, and I actually wish that I would have I would have taken more advantage of what I did um, than, than what I did I mean I, I did a good bit of it but if I would have with all the opportunities that I had I just kind of wish I would have got stuck in more in the academic life yeah, that dovetails well, well with earlier what you are saying about the classes and not being concentrated on grades, right? The education experience as a whole is what's important. So mm -hmm. the life of the mind needs to be fostered. You need to go to that lecture you're interested in. You know, if you're here at Southeastern, you need to find out what's going on at Duke. You need to find out what's going on at UNC, NC State, and go and hear those lectures. They're important. And, and come to the ones here. I mean, I, 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 I encourage even, you know, everyone to do that, but especially for PhD students, to be engaged in the community, getting to know people, getting to know ideas. What are people talking about? Yep. That's terribly important. Yeah. Um, just another practical piece for those of you guys and girls who are married, uh, taking your spouse on the journey with you. Mm. Um, because uh, to do a PhD is a family decision. That's right. Because it takes sacrifice on everybody's part. So putting the goal out there, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're making these sacrifices. This is, this, is, this is how I'm pursuing this. This is what's going on right now. This is how we're getting closer to the. So basically communicating with your spouse so they're not just sacrificing for nothing's sake. They're sacrificing because there's the goal that you've articulated to them. And they know, he or she knows exactly why you're doing what you're doing and exactly how the Lord is preparing you for uh, the future and the serve your spouse in the world, in the church, uh, as you're walking through the process. So uh, just continue to, to cast that vision in the home uh, to, your, to your husband and to your wife, and also to your kids if they're old enough to be cognizant, because my daughter, just she doesn't care right now, so because she's 14 months old.
It's All right. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you for coming by. Um, I believe you've made this talk uh, a fantastic talk. You've, you've done well. Um, I've certainly learned a lot from you guys, and um, I'm sure these guys have as well. Um, so thank you for your time. Let's give them a round of applause Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.